Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 165, The First Congress. In the spring of 1789, the newly elected congressmen and senators made their way to the first capital of the United States, New York City. It was smaller than Philadelphia, which had a population of around 45,000 people. New York was only 30,000, but it was rapidly growing. Back in 1789, it was still the tip of Manhattan, with Greenwich Village being considered out of town. This New York was very different to the one of today, but as I say, it was rapidly growing. Having a high foreign-born percentage of the population would indeed become a key character trait of New York City. But in 1789, New York was still mainly potential. The same could be said about a lot of the United States, and in particular, its government. The Constitution had been ratified by 11 of the 13 states, but the Constitution was only a small document. It only had 4,543 words. All of this would need to be fleshed out. Precedents would need to be set. It will become clear over the course of the next few episodes what needed to be done. Members of the First Congress included many veterans of the Revolution and the Constitutional Convention. A good number of the names will be familiar to you. In the Senate were Oliver Ellsworth of Connecticut, Caleb Strong of Massachusetts, Philip Schuyler and Rufus King of New York, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia, and Robert Morris of Pennsylvania. The House contained Roger Sherman of Connecticut, Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, and James Madison of Virginia. They were originally supposed to meet on March 4th, but it took until April 1st for a quorum to be reached in the House, and nearly another week for a quorum to be reached in the Senate. In that first joint session, Washington was elected president, and John Adams as vice president. The early days of the House of Representatives were, well, perhaps you could generously call them energetic, but chaotic might be a more appropriate word. It was not uncommon to have multiple speakers talking at once, and it was known for individuals to physically attack each other. It would be quite different to the Senate. In my opinion, the greatest reason for the difference in behaviours is that the House decided to open its debates to the public. Unlike in the colonial assemblies or the British Houses of Parliament, the public would be allowed to watch. This undoubtedly encouraged speech-making for the sake of it, with congressmen concerned about the reportings of their speeches in the press. Benjamin Goodhue of Massachusetts named these unnecessary speeches as the biggest reason for the slow moving of legislation. The House began to shape itself in ways that encouraged this, for example going into the Committee of the Whole, which allowed for looser rules on debates. Committee of the Whole had been a common practice in Virginia's House of Burgesses. Unsurprisingly, the practice was defended by the Virginians, who tended to blame delay on the sheer number of novelties they were dealing with as they tried to establish precedents. This may have been partly for show, but the House was busier than the Senate. In its first three sessions, the Senate considered 24 public bills, in comparison to 146 considered by the House. 
The house may have been a bit of a free-for-all, but the undisputed master of the house was Madison. Madison wasn't the strongest speaker, but he diligently prepared and made himself the expert on any subject that arose. He was the link between the executive and the legislature, which made sense given his relationship with Hamilton and Hamilton's relationship with Washington. I think Madison's indispensability at this stage is neatly summed up by this quote from Gordon S. Wood in Empire of Liberty, A History of the Early Republic, 1789-1815, page 62. Quote, he helped Washington draft his inaugural address to the Congress, then drafted the response of the House of Representatives to that address, and finally helped the President in his reply to that response. End quote. Incidentally, I cannot recommend Empire of Liberty highly enough, and it has served as my guide for structuring this series of episodes. On the other hand, there was the Senate. While the House was establishing revenue and the executive departments, the Senate was tied up with the really important business, establishing protocol. Should senators address each other as right honourable? How should they refer to members of the lower house? There were discussions over whether the president and vice president were more like the two kings of Sparta or the two consuls of Rome. John Adams was particularly concerned with this, being both the vice president and the president of the Senate. What they should call the president was a great matter of concern. President seemed too common and businesslike. An early favourite was His High Mightiness, the President of the United States and Protector of Their Liberties. Their High Mightinesses was a title often used by the leaders of the United Provinces. Elective Highness was another suggested. When Jefferson learned of Adams's obsession, he remembered a description of Adams by Franklin. Always an honest man, often a great one, but sometimes absolutely mad. Madison was greatly concerned by this. He had been with the other nationalists in 1787 for wanting a strong central government, but doing so through a monarchy had never crossed his mind in the way it seemed to be doing for Adams and Hamilton. As usual, Madison got his way. He convinced the House to simply have the President of the United States as a title, and the Senate was forced to go along with it. When Washington was inaugurated on April 30th, Adams spent the whole time asking how he should behave, while the senators tried to remember what the British did. When Washington actually arrived, Adams was speechless, perhaps for the first time in his life. The only legislation the Senate initiated in its first session was to establish the judiciary. Senator William McClay of Pennsylvania described life in the Senate as this, quote, we used to stay in the Senate chamber till about two o'clock, whether we did anything or not, by way of keeping up the appearance of business. But even this, we seem to have got over. End quote. As Congress tried working out what exactly it was and what it was supposed to do, Washington was having similar difficulties with establishing the presidency. As with much history of the early republic, it seems very strange to us now knowing what would follow. Principally, it was not out of the question that America would become a monarchy. 
it seemed logical to many they would replace one King George with another. And I'm not talking about fringe political figures here. This was people like Thomas Jefferson. Poland was an example of an elective monarchy that could be looked to. Washington could easily become a president for life. The presidency was, after all, an office designed specifically to be held by George Washington. An early draft of his inaugural address included mention of how he didn't have children to pass on a crown to, to try and convince people he didn't want to be a king, although Madison convinced him to edit it out of the final document. Washington struggled with finding the right tone for the presidency. While he had often inclined to simplicity, he knew that the head of state needed dignity, both for the sake of the country and for future holders of the office. Hamilton advised him heavily, calling Washington your excellency, telling him to hold weekly receptions of no more than half an hour where he may speak with invited guests, and up to four formal entertainments a year, while never accepting invitations. Washington found these receptions tedious, but a necessary compromise between the openness of the Republic and the respectability of the office. Adams also suggested that Washington embrace the splendour of the office. On May 17th, 1789, Adams wrote to Washington, quote, Neither dignity nor authority can be supported in human minds, collected into nations or any great numbers, without a splendour and majesty, in some degree, proportioned to them, end quote. While Washington did accept a large salary and have a splendid coach, he also took an afternoon walk in public. Adams rode to the Senate in a magnificent carriage each day and wore a pounded wig for sessions. Adams appears somewhat ridiculous to us now, looking back, but he was also mocked for this at the time, One of his nicknames was the Duke of Braintree. But you must remember, the Americans of the era only really had the European royal courts to draw inspiration from. It's only natural that this is where their minds went. Bands played God Save the King when Washington appeared in public. An aristocratic salon grew at the home of Sarah Livingston Jay, which was the centre of New York social life a social circle which included George Washington, along with Martha Washington, Elizabeth Hamilton, Kitty Dewar, Mary Watts, and Christiana Griffin. When Jefferson arrived in New York to take over the State Department, he remarked he was the only Republican in the city. Washington's principal concern was the Union. He was in favour of policies that would strengthen the Union, such as transport links with roads and canals, or communication like the post office. He and his wife Martha arranged marriages that crossed state lines. For example, James Madison of Virginia and Dolly Payne of North Carolina, although her family had been living in Pennsylvania since the early 1780s. Washington took tours of the states, He was also concerned with the grandeur of the new capital, the federal city, and ensuring that it was bigger than Philadelphia. Jefferson would have fired the architect if he had his way. While all of this can seem silly in retrospect, I hope I've been able to make clear to you how earnest these early debates over the style of the Republic were. There was a genuine debate here 
over what direction the country should go and what the best way to set about displaying the strength of the government was while staying true to Republican principles. To put it another way, in these debates, you can start to see the birth of America's first political parties, the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. One of the key differentiators between the parties would be in the Federalist belief in an aristocracy, that government was the right of gentlemen in a social hierarchy. Some were born to lead, while others were born to follow. This was countered by the Democratic Republicans, who believed in governance by the people and in a smaller, simpler government. While a few years ago, many here would have been on the same side in arguing for a strong national government, their triumph had paved the way for division. Adams and Hamilton clearly saw Britain as their inspiration. Britain was the most powerful and richest government in the world. If they wanted to project power, they wanted to copy its forms. This was a path Washington would largely follow. Meanwhile, Madison saw this as going against what 1776 and 1787 had been about. Madison wanted a strong government, yes, but a Republican one, not one in the trappings of monarchy. Now that we've got a good grounding of what was going on in 1789, join me next time when we can get into the most pressing matter for the First Congress, the Bill of Rights. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then. (laughs) 